Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, and down the line from New York, we have Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest today is Managing Director of Accenture Strategy, Tom Merry. Today, we'll be talking about Deutsche and Commerzbank. Are Germany's two biggest banks going to merge? Secondly, a look at JP Morgan as it warns on revenue for the first quarter of the year. And finally, what are the challenges facing the challengers in UK banking? First out to that story about Deutsche and Commerzbank, Stephen and David, along with Olaf Storbeck in Frankfurt, you both wrote a big analysis piece about the fact that this proposed merger is now looking more and more inevitable. It's got a lot of support from various factions, including the German government. Stephen, how far off is it and how likely is it really to happen, do you think? Well, there's been a real sort of sea change in the attitudes in the German government as they brought in a new finance minister and his deputy, a former Goldman Sachs derivatives trader and head of their operations in Germany. And they've started to make very different comments in public, talking about how they need a national champion and having a strong banking system is a matter of national sovereignty and security. So really, they're looking at the dire performance of mainly Deutsche Bank, but also Commerce Bank as well. And we had a nice chart in the story which showed just how far down the graph they are, both in terms of their valuation, their price to book value, and also their return on equity, which for Deutsche Bank was 0.5% last year. So they really don't seem to be able to solve their problems on their own. And the German government looks like it might at some point this year, unless things start to improve organically, step in, put the two of them together and hope that combined they can be a more powerful, lower cost group that actually retains some kind of international standing to help support the country's industry. David, how popular would this be within the banks themselves? Because Paul Achleitner, the chairman of Deutsche, has made it pretty clear that he likes the idea of a combination. Does that reflect broader support within the banks, do you think? I don't think it does, actually. When you talk to the executives inside both banks, they think that this would be a gift to their competitors, that they would be distracted by having to integrate the two companies. And all at a time when the sort of contest for European investment banking business is is pretty tough out there, not least because of the rejuvenated Americans. So I don't think there is much support among the executive ranks. But as you say, the chairman of Deutsche Bank, we think, is lobbying for this deal behind the scenes. Stephen, a final word from you. You've painted this from the government perspective as a desire to create a national champion. And clearly, there is a concern that they don't really have a bank that can follow their very impressive industrial champions around the world as effectively as they would like. It's hard to see that adding Commerzbank Bank to Deutsche necessarily does that. But maybe there's an argument. What about the other 
motivation that people talk about, that because the government is a shareholder in Comets Bank, merging it with Deutsche would give it a direct stake in the combined group. And that part of the motivation behind wanting to push this deal is that they would then be direct shareholders in Deutsche Bank, which has been through some troubled times. It's had lots of scandals. Its share price has fallen to record lows in recent months. Its bond prices have tumbled. It's had to pay huge coupons to raise finance in the markets. It's kind of jittery about the systemic risk here as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it may have a very low valuation, but it still has an enormous balance sheet. The German government owns 15% of Commerce Bank, and if it merged in a no-premium deal with Deutsche, it would end up with a 5% stake in the combined group. Obviously, that would give it a say on corporate governance, it would give it a say on hiring policies, it would give it a say on bonuses, you know, all these political issues. And also, it might change the attitude of foreign regulators to Deutsche as well. One of the biggest problems of this, Deutsche keeps getting fined huge amounts in the US, it's getting embroiled in Eastern European money laundering scandals with Russia... Maybe foreign authorities and supervisors might take a step back and become less harsh if it looks like they're actually fining the German state rather than sort of an independently listed company. They should give RBS a call. I don't think they've quite fined the same experience as a result of being owned by the British government, but they can keep their fingers crossed, I guess. Thank you both for that analysis. Well, let's move on to our second item and look at JP Morgan. This has been a story, really, of success over the past few years, the biggest winner, really, from the crisis over the past decade. But at an investor day last week, there was a bit more doubt expressed, particularly over the first quarter of the year. Let's go over to Laura in New York, who was at the investor day last week. What was the mood like overall, Laura? The overall theme of the investor day was probably one of caution. This is a bank that's had a lot go right for it in the last decade, and it did spend quite a long time telling us why all its businesses were so well positioned. But it definitely had a cautious undertone to the whole thing. I mean, they kept their return on common equity target at 17%, which is what they're already making. They spoke a lot about the prospect of, while they don't see any immediate threat of recession, that there are certainly some red lights flashing in some rays of the economy. They were also particularly stark around the trading area. So the head of the investment bank, Daniel Pinto, gave a prediction that there would be a high teens percentage fall in trading revenue in the first quarter. That's far higher than people had expected. So I think... They're certainly being very cautious about the outlook and some analysts would say, in fact, a bit overly cautious about the outlook. There was also some interesting guidance about tech spending, Laura, wasn't there? They're already the biggest spender in the industry. What's happening on the tech side? The surprise on the tech spending front was that it's actually increasing. So we had expected them to pare things back a little. There's an internal project in the investment bank in particular to streamline tech spending. In fact, the CFO guided that tech spending would go up about $600 million this year, but there was certainly a lot of reinforcement that the money has to be well spent. Daniel Pinto in particular, again, he was very insistent on the need to get more value from every dollar. But I think there's just a feeling that a bank as big as JP Morgan Chase needs to be at the forefront of all of these things. So I think in that sense, they are willing to continue to spend. And certainly analysts I spoke to on the day and afterwards they were all very supportive of the level of tech spending. And indeed, there's even an acceptance that if you have a 10 billion, 11 billion now, 11.4 billion dollar tech spend, not all of the money is going to be well spent. It's a bit like private equity investment in that you do a lot of deals and you hope that some of them actually work out. In the case of tech spending, you invest in a lot of different projects. So I think there is an acceptance of that. I think in case of what the bank is doing, they're just trying to be 
clearer that when you have a limitless budget, which they effectively have for tech, that you don't just squander it. And there was a view that you could maybe indulge people's pet projects a little bit. And I think that that era has certainly drawn to a close. And certainly I think we'll see banks across the space becoming more disciplined in that area. Finally, let's take a look at the UK challenger banking market. Nick, you've been reporting on a couple of these players, Metrobank and Revolut, that in the past few days have found themselves facing increasing challenges. Tell us first about Revolut. That's a totally new story. What exactly has gone on? Revolut, who, for anyone who is not familiar with them at this point, are one of the UK and Europe's most viable fintech startups, worth about $1.7 billion in its last fundraising. And it's grown very quickly, offering foreign exchange services and widening out into a broader banking market in the next couple of months. But it's run into a bit of trouble in the last couple of weeks on several issues. The first of which that kicked off in the middle of last week is that the financial conduct authorities concerned that it wasn't open enough with them when it ran into some issues with a new anti-money laundering system that it developed. They had written a letter outlining some of the problems with it, and it turns out that was never actually sent to the FCA, which did not please the FCA when that came through. And then at the same time, we've reported this week that they're being investigated by police over some payments that appear to have been sent to the wrong account. In both cases, it's adding to concerns that this company has grown very quickly and been very successful in doing that, but whether it can actually manage its newfound scale effectively without running into problems in terms of compliance is in doubt. And of course, this comes on the back of the rather more fun gaffe that they made a month or so ago when they implied in some punchy advertising that they had data on what people were spending that they actually admitted then they made up. Remind us on the Metro story. This has obviously been running for several weeks now after they got into trouble over an accounting misreporting around their risk-weighted assets. What's the latest on Metro? Yeah, so as you said, we've discussed this a couple of times before, but very quick overview is that they miscategorized quite a large number of their loans um, and it turned out after discovering this that they didn't have as much capital against them as they should have done. That meant last week they now gave us the full update on how they were responding to this to try and fix it and there was a lot so they've had to cut their growth forecasts and rearrange their plans quite significantly. They're raising £350 million in new shares at some point over the next couple of months and they're being investigated by both the FCA and the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority. The PRA is sort of looking at the practicalities of the misclassification and how they managed to do that despite using what are supposed to be relatively simple, standardised models for calculating their risk-weighted assets. The FCA is more concerned, again, as with Revolut, about the company's communications. They initially made out that it was the bank themselves who had discovered the problem, and it turned out that In fact, it had been pointed out to them by the PRA. And then over the longer term, there might be some concerns that their earlier communications, because they were based on incorrect numbers, could have potentially created a false market in its shares. Let me bring in here Tom Mary from Accenture Strategy. Thanks for coming in. It sounds to me that both of these issues may have been caused by governance failures, really. Maybe it's that, you know, the small company, the startup gap of experience and capabilities coming home to roost in a variety of different ways. Do you think that's a fair assessment? 
I think clearly what you've diagnosed is accurate in those, as with all companies that are growing as quickly as both of those have, that there's challenges on how you organise yourself as you get bigger. So how you organise yourself as a startup and as a fintech, particularly in the case of Revolut, is not how you would necessarily organise yourself when you drive that kind of growth. So I think you've happened upon one challenge for the challengers, which is how they grow in a very regulated, highly consumer-facing market and achieve the right levels of control and governance through that growth. But I'm as interested, Patrick, in some of the other challenges that are facing the challenges, which I guess are rather than firm specific point in time issues, which I know are very material. I think there's some interesting topics around whether the challenger banking set are going to achieve what they've set out to do more generally. Yeah, that's a good point, because we're a decade on from the financial crisis. And of course, it was the crisis really that spawned a lot of these startups. Metro was formed just around that time. And we've had fintechs obviously launching in their dozens over the past few years in particular. None really seems to have made it through to the big time, particularly in Europe, outside perhaps the payment space. As Nick says, yes, Revolut is growing super fast. But you know, compare any of these entities, even the peer-to-peer lenders, with the big banks or even some of the small banks, and they're a kind of a dot uh, on the landscape. Why have they not been able to make more of an inroad, and will that change? Uh, the million-dollar question, I think. You're absolutely right. I mean, the way that we at Accenture Strategy categorise them, because I think this is important, is three buckets. So you have your neo banks, which are genuine new entrants with a very digitally focused, simple proposition. You've got your traditional challenges, which are often banks that have got you know multi-centuries of heritage. And then you've got an interesting new chapter, which is the incumbents opening up their own neo banks. And I think it's important to observe how all three of those categories are doing. But to answer your question, you're absolutely right. The thing that is very stark about the fintech and the challenger market, particularly with the neos, is the gap between customer acquisition numbers and balances. There's 8 million customers over the last three years that have been drawn into what we call neobanks as customers. And yet against the 1 trillion that incumbents hold in terms of savings and current account deposits, there's only about a billion held by those neos. So if you work that out, that's about £70 per customer versus an average of £9,300. Now, that challenge is really material when you think about how banks used to make money and the emphasis on net interest margins. And so for these banks to be able to succeed in a new model, there's a few things that have to happen. They have to switch towards a more fee-based model. They have to have a cost to serve that's materially lower. So I think the first point to note is, you know, can they convert customer numbers into balances, which is so fundamental? And we haven't seen that yet. A lot of that comes down to whether they actually have primary relationships versus secondary account relationships. And the knock-on impact of that is one of scale. So we come back to, you know, what scale means in this industry. But it's not just scale from a balance sheet perspective, but also from an investment perspective. And I think this is a really core challenge for those challenges. On the one hand, in a world where you have a large balance sheet on both the asset and liability side, you have advantages in terms of cost and funding and pricing that are material in both the SME and the retail space. But as interesting for me is the investment capacity that you have as a challenger. If you think about the reaction from some of the incumbent banks to the new entrance, it's been formidable, in my opinion, and it's really driving the industry forward. It's a great thing for customers on the high street that what they're getting from their incumbent bank now is catching up and in some cases going ahead of what was believed to be really you know, amazing features and widgetry from the NEOs a few years ago. And that's partly because they have the money to invest. And so all of the big five have put billion pound plus investments in digital. So that's the second thing. I think it's that challenge about how they unlock the capacity to invest. We see stubbornly low switching rates across SME and retail. And we recently did a YouGov survey of 1,000 plus SME customers. 
at 75% who said we're unlikely to switch in the next 12 months, which is interesting. But what's just or even more interesting is that some 59% said that was even if a smaller challenger bank gave them a better service. So if you're giving them a better service and offering, they were still reluctant to switch. Tom, do you think realistically that these fintechs, small as they are, can keep the technological edge over much bigger players? Three or four years ago, some of the widgets that were available, the features via the apps, were really compelling. And they drew in millennials, they drew in all sorts of customers who were excited about nudge SMSs, about the ability to see accounts in one place, tapping out of your Oyster card, freezing card transactions temporarily and then switching them back on, getting cards the next day. Most of those things now are available via the incumbents. I think the challenges had a window of opportunity where they had something very different and they needed to use that time to convert, as I say, customer acquisition into balances. And we haven't seen that come through yet. I'm not too pessimistic, though. I think there are some real opportunities that the underlying architecture and the way that these businesses run allows them to be much lower cost to serve. And that's got to be great in terms of agility and the economics of the business. What's clear is that their digital feature rich apps are appealing because they're getting customers on the app, even if it's not the primary account and the balance doesn't follow. And the lack of complexity that they have, and I mean that not just in terms of technology, but in terms of product proposition that over the decades has been bolted on because you know one type of customer wants something new or some front office leader wants to just slightly tweak a product, that drives real complexity. So there's a lot of opportunity for the challenges, but you're right that at the moment we haven't seen them necessarily have the impact that we thought we might. Opportunities ahead, but also growing challenges, perhaps. Tom Merry from Accenture Strategy, thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank David, Stephen, Nick and Laura and also our guest, Tom Mary from Accenture. And also thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.